What was your percentage overrun on the job? Your, your project cost was a million dollars. Where did they end up? A million one. So why'd they end up at a million one? And the owner, you'll be able to read it on their face, right? I made the changes. That was on me. Or, you know, and, you know, when you see like the stuttering a little bit okay. or not a clear answer, that should give you a little bit of pause that maybe cost overruns are in your future with this GC. Yeah. And that doesn't mean to not use the GC. That just goes back to the make sure you're having weekly meetings with them. Communication lines remain open. And you tell that GC, if you are running into a change, document it, let me see it, and let's talk about it. I, as the owner, will be able to make fast decisions for you so it doesn't mess up right. your timeline so long as you promise me good documentation yeah, explanations those when those things happen. I'm Drew Brenneman, and this is the Rise and Invest podcast. I bought my first two properties as a 19-year-old with my own money that I earned from an online business I started in high school. I've now grown my portfolio from that first duplex to hundreds of millions of dollars of investment property. My goal with this show is to give you the resource I wanted when I first started out. Subscribe to our podcast where I break down real life stories, tactics, strategies, and current market information you need to be a successful investor. All right. Welcome back to another podcast. Today's guest is Eric Weber, co-founder of 33 Realty and Cube Construction. Welcome. Thank you very much. Looking forward to the conversation. I was really looking forward to this episode too. You know, Eric's in a really unique position in terms of what he's working on or had experience with where he, he owns rental property, he started a property management company. And then after all that, he started a construction company. A lot of people, their perspective is just they're, they're an investor or they're just in property management or they only do construction. And then, you know, at least for me as a, a owner, when I was getting started, you know, it's, you hire someone from construction and it feels like a huge gamble. You're giving them some money and, you know, hope they come back basically. So anyways, looking forward to getting to all this with Eric and, uh, you know, with that unique perspective. So I think probably first let's dive into, you know, how you got started in real estate. Sure. I, it isn't too far off from what you experienced and construction was kind of the bane of our early existence at the time, which is going back about 12 years, I was working a corporate America job and was really didn't feel fulfilled and knew I loved real estate and was helping friends and family buy like condos and townhomes on the side and was just getting this excitement out of it yeah. that slowly but surely evolved into this career I found myself going into in real estate. And one of the things my partner Drew and I looked at was a void in the industry for a, for a company that could really take someone through the life cycle of an investment, part of which obviously we've yeah. done with you, not the whole life cycle, because you know what you're doing. But a lot of times we got novice investors with money that wanted to be silent. And in being silent, they didn't want to have to hire a bunch of different people to right. do the work and control all these different parties. And that was the void we saw. And we said, okay, we love doing transactions with townhomes and condos. What if we bring in the property management and the leasing and the construction? Right. And really the goal was someone comes to us with money, we say, we can help you find an investment property. We can help you underwrite it. And underwriting meaning we can help you estimate the rents, understand the operating expenses, and understand what it takes to renovate a building. Right. And in doing so, we could get basically these people into these silent passive investments and generate good returns for them and fees for us. The piece of it that we really didn't know and admittedly did poorly out of the gate was construction. And we did it poorly because we were hiring small GCs. And we are what's called construction managing them, which is really us just managing them to do their job. And slowly but surely, we realized 
forcing them to do things or trying to force them to do things wasn't extremely effective and not having the control was making it difficult to really optimize investments. And so early in 14, I believe we said, you know what, if we're going to do this and we're going to be real about it, let's start our own construction company. Let's be true general contractors. And what that means is we hire all the subs. Previously we were hiring, you know, ABC company, which was a general contractor and they bring all their subs and we were beholden to ABC company. Right. We couldn't influence if their, their subs showed up at the job, if their subs were going to pass through legit change orders. In order to get there, we said, you know what, we're going to replace ABC company with what is now Cube Construction. And it, it, it has been effective. It's been tremendously valuable. Sometimes I wonder why I do it because construction, you kind of got to be a glutton, yeah. glutton for punishment. But it is a component of our integrated real estate model that's extremely important because it traditionally carries the highest risk right. in a real estate transaction, as you know, because you've been through it so many times. And then, because and so you started Cubed in 2014, and then starting with this originally when you were doing brokerage on the side, what year was that? So brokerage on the side goes all the way back to like 2005 and six and seven. My partner Drew was in engineering. I was a CPA and I was doing restructuring work and we were just... We're just hustling deals on yeah. the side. And then in nine, he jumped. He started the management and leasing company. It was really a leasing company because we were seeing you could make more money renting apartments than we could in these highly okay. intense, yeah, big hour jobs. And so in nine, he started that off and it was, it was small, but it was taken off in 12. We had been talking and I was still doing deals on the side with him. And he said, you know, I need you to come over because if we're going to really do this thing, we need to be able to expand the scale and we were great friends and we worked well together. So in 12, I jumped from corporate America and we really started to get into that full service model right. with some relationships that I had from corporate America guys that were looking to deploy silent capital. And that really started, we, you know, as a springboard, if you will, to get us going in this direction of this integrated model in 14, when we started cubed is when we, we really, we're at that point where we had enough scale and we knew we had enough inbound business that we could sustain a true construction operation. And I hired you guys for property management yes, 2014. So yes, you did. And you guys have done a great job. And I think it's interesting too hearing how you're explaining this because now something I haven't told you before because it just happened, but we started buying in Phoenix. Every deal except for one we're buying requires a renovation, okay. like in a pretty big renovations. So you know we were more or less we're picking the property management company in large part on their construction management okay. abilities. And there's one where the construction is completely in-house. They have their own designer. They have, they, although when you look at a lot of our competitors, they either use them or are using them. And so it's like they, someone was asking me actually in our office, like almost like, why do they offer all this stuff? Like this is so many people on staff. And I'm like, well, they're securing the business. Like oh, yeah. we have to use them now because they like, he, we just did our physical inspection on Tuesday and I talked to him actually yesterday, you know, yesterday, so it'd be Thursday. And he's like, you should have brought me on Tuesday. We could have brought our engineers with, we would have been pulling permits yep. already. And I was like, wow, okay, that's a compelling offering. And so you guys figured that out too. Cause I, I ended up all the Chicago deals. I did our construction differently, but I'm, I was here, yep. you know? So then I, it was not as tough, but if you're from out of town and you, you know, it's a lot harder to take a gamble on a GC, whereas if they have something totally integrated that's you see is working for others. And we walked one of their buildings and it was like the cleanest laundry hookups I've ever seen. Was, honestly, <laughs> it was like and they had even the extra breather valve on the top of the a drain. And 
It's all new drywall in there. I was like, this is, this is, looks like a, it's very nice. Well, you yeah. and I nerd out yeah. on things like that, I know. which I don't know if people listening yeah. to this are going to appreciate cleaning laundry rooms, but I, know, I feel that Cause that was, you know, and then I saw like a competitors, how they added laundry in a closet and it was, it's all Jerry rigged Junkie, around yeah. and I was, you know, so anyways, I saw that and I was like to in the broker room, well, like, let's, I need to, I need to talk to this guy. So, so it makes sense. Cause I actually just went through that in Phoenix and I never told you that cause that happened yesterday, you know? So then it makes sense why you'd get into that. So then let's, I mean, kind of what was, what was like a driving factor to kind of actually start at the beginning, like 33 Realty and kind of get into this? It was, you just wanted more than what was going on at your day job or what was, was kind of going through your mind at that point? You know, corporate America is a path that has made many, many, many people fulfilled and, and wealthy and satisfied. And you know, I was looking at it going, is this what I want long-term? Do I want to be, I mean, maybe beholden is a little dramatic of a word, but was I going to be at the mercy of someone else for, for the rest of my career? And I have an entrepreneurial spirit. I'd done things on the side and I had always said, well, I can always fall back on my corporate job. So I was doing these little entrepreneurial endeavors on the side. And there's a point, I guess, at which, and, and this happens at different points for everyone, and you had your own experience, where you just say, it's, it's time to take that that risk. At the time I bought my first house, had my first kid, I just bought a car. So it was kind of like, maybe this isn't exactly the right time to do it, but maybe that's the exact right time right. to do it. Right. When you kind of, you can't lose. Or it'd be even, it'd be hard. It's, I feel like it's harder to do it as you get older. Well, that, like, that's a great You could have waited and now you have, you know, two kids and then, you know, or whatever, and it's going to be even tougher yep. then. And it was so. funny. My wife was very, very, you know, supportive of it. And that point you just made was spot on. At what point, are you too far down the path in this existence with a salary and benefits? And you can be making a whole lot of money and be fulfilled. That's the other thing too. Even if I wasn't going to make the money that I hoped I was going to make, I needed to be happy. And I just wasn't happy in the career path that I was in. So I took a slightly less risk. I took a slightly risk averse approach where I was able to keep that corporate job for a couple of years while I was doing what I call the side hustle. It turned out the side hustle was really fun really fun. And we made some mistakes. We started in 2006 and seven. So we bought some investment properties ourselves, which have, we still own today and not, not, out, not by choice. Okay. We made some really bad investments. Yeah. And then we started buying again in 2009 and we made some really good investments. And it was funny. We bought these three buildings in Chicago on Addison Avenue, not too far from Wrigley, a little further west from Wrigley. But we bought the first one, I think at 525,000, the second one at like 500,000. Lost pretty, we, we were able to cash flow them, but just barely. But we were like plunging the toilets ourselves, yeah. renting the apartments ourselves, yeah. doing everything we could. And then 2009 came, we were freaking out. Thank God we, we had enough capital behind us to be able to sustain operations at those two buildings. And then 3118 Addison became available. And that was available at 200,000. And so we're sitting there scratching our heads yeah, going, we got to buy it. Now. We got to yeah. buy it. But yeah. like, we we're so <laughs> jaded from the first two. We're like, ah, but we did it. We kind of dollar cost average those yeah. three properties and broke, if you will, even. Okay. But we got the itch and we hired, in fact, we hired a small GC for that project and he worked out great and we're still friends with him to this day. But that was back when material prices were lower and labor yeah. costs were lower, but it turned out great. We took a basement and we converted into an apartment. We loved it. We laid it out ourselves. We rented it ourselves. And I guess it was serendipitous because 2009 and 10 acquisition opportunities started arising, as you know. Yeah. And I think 
really, if there's something I would have done different back then, we set out to really build our operating companies. So the management, the leasing, the brokerage construction, if I had to do it all over, I would have ran around, raised as much equity as I possibly could have and bought as many buildings and then hired people like me. So I didn't have to deal with like what we're in now. Now we're very proud of what we've built since then in the operating companies, but still the most attractive and fun thing that we do is buy the buildings. And you and I have talked about this ad nauseum, how much we love that side of the business, which of course comes with its own headaches, but it's just so, it's just so exciting. You know, one thing we always say, I don't know if you feel this way, but it's like finding the deal is way more exciting than when you close on. You know what I mean? For sure. And also what's interesting and just seeing how you're talking, what's actually, I tell a lot of people the most fun, it might've been those first three deals you bought. Like that is, you know, totally. so fun. Like you're just figuring out and you're like, wow, this is actually working. And then it, you know, it, it's stopped working. And then, but then this other thing for 200 grand came across and you're excited. We're now like that would, you know, you're, you've been doing it a long time. You're, you're getting, you know, you get a little more jaded and like, oh, 200 grand, this small deal where. <laughs> It's those first ones for me too. I just still, you know, not knowing how some stuff worked and it was into my own money. So I could kind of figure it out as I went, but it was, I always say that the first deals that I bought on my own. And then the first ones that I bought with an investor, that was the most, like, I always remember just like the amounts some of these people put in. I was so surprised. My parents are teachers, so they could sell everything and wouldn't have the equity checks that some of these people could put in just kind of like, that's fine. I'll do it. crazy. If you got another one, I'll do that one too. And you know, you're just, Mine's blown. Now, if that happened, it's like, well, that's normal. That was a small one. I I try to, you know, figuratively pinch myself on that because I do look back at the thing I started by saying was being able to do that and not be in a corporate job reminds me at each one of those deals that this shouldn't be treated as commonplace because I find myself doing exactly what you do. And I'm like, all right, there's another deal. But it can't, it, it, it really, really deep down isn't that. I think part of the fulfillment I get now, and my kids aren't quite old enough to get it, but one of them, my oldest is 10, is telling her the stories and convey to her how fun this is and just having her look at me like, nothing you're saying to me, Dad, is interesting at all. And I'm like, it will be one day, That's I funny. promise you. Please, please follow my footsteps yeah. and do something <laughs> entrepreneurial. But it, it's, it's just I just think real estate, and spe- specifically in the, in the industry, the part of the industry you and I are in, it's just, it's so, it's so fun. It's so invigorating. And sometimes when I start to get a little complacent, I have to remind myself of that because I do, I find myself in a rut sometimes doing what you're doing. Like, okay, they're just bought a hundred units. Like that was a $10 million building. We just bought like, that's, that's insane. I yeah. never in my wildest dreams thought I'd be doing that. No, I know. And because I remember, and I was talking to someone else who went to UW Madison and there was, when I was in high school, somebody sold the private dorms for or a series of them for a hundred million dollars. And, <laughs> you know, and so, and I was told kind of what he was walking away with, which, you know, is a lot of money, but I remember hearing about that and it was just unimaginable. And it's crazy. Like I bought like double that amount now, like where it's like, I would never would have imagined even meeting the guy. And then that for him, that was one deal, but it's just weird to think like how it snowballed. And it's, so I do yeah. the same thing where now it's definitely funny. So, well, the point you bring up about the dollar magnitude of, of these transactions is so significant, but when you break it down to what it is, you're just buying a hundred apartments. I'm at figure, you right. know, the example I'm using, say a hundred units, you're buying a hundred kitchens and they all look the same and the tenant profile is the same, but the price tag on it is $10 million or a hundred million dollars, but it's still back down to real estate, which I, I like to call meat and potatoes. It's not like we're sitting here acquiring a company and, 
trying yeah. to figure out how to integrate the technology and roll in the right people into the right roles and hedge our interest rate. Like we're not buying a building. We can see it. We know exactly how to add value to it. And then we can sit on it and generate a cash flow. And it's, it, it's, it's, it's less daunting after you've done it a couple of times. When, when I speak, so in our operating companies, we have about 175 people that work for us. And one of the things that we preach every single day is we want them to invest in real estate. And so we've built this training program in the company under this, under this umbrella called Own It Capital Partners. And what we want them to do is we want them to learn how to invest in real estate the way you and I do. Okay, nice. So we find these small deals where my partner Drew and I will guarantee the debt. And then each department will invest a small amount of money into the deal, like a limited partner, as, as small as 500 bucks. But the property manager will be invested. The, the GC will be invested. The leasing agents. And they're all in it together. And we buy a six flat. And we add the value. And then they see this happen, directly contributing to it. And then they generate a return on their money. And the nice. thing we preach in the organization is one day, for yeah. those of you that really have the appetite for the risk, you leave, you do this, you syndicate the deals, and you become a client of ours. Oh, nice. And it's kind of like it's, it's brought us together for that vision of what do we want to do, and that's, that's own real estate together. So I guess that's part of, I don't, you know, well, I kind of digress great, on the story. That, but, I mean, if you think it's interesting where if I'm, I mean, they'd be much better suited than I'm trying to do something at a property. They would understand why, like, Oh, that's why he's doing yep. this there. Cause they're trying to do that at the deal that they're in. That's interesting. Well, for the listeners, so. Drew Brenneman is been one of our most fundamental clients, sometimes the hardest, but sometimes very easy. But the one thing you've always done, and I think it has taught them is you get right down to the basics of, of what you're trying to do with your properties and when they step back and see why you're asking for certain things to be done, you do it very fairly and you're very calm about the way you ask for things. They start to see, okay, maybe I do have to scrutinize when the maintenance guy goes back for the third repair on the same issue. We get yelled at a lot as property managers and leasing agents, right? Yeah. And it's like, you get yelled at by clients. It's just, you get fatigued and maybe you don't give it the care and attention that it deserves. But when someone is walking in like you do, where you've got your money in the deal and you treat it pragmatically and you speak to these people constructively and I'm not blowing smoke. It really has. We've talked about this with you as a client. It does help our people and the evolution of the company. We've seen clients act that way with our people. And we finally said, how are they going to embrace the position our clients are taking with ownership of their buildings unless they act like owners themselves. So it's been rewarding. We're, we're, we're being conservative about our acquisitions because God forbid we, put our employees into something right. that doesn't work and the market's a little hot right now, but we try to find one, one a year. And I, I really have seen it change the demeanor with the people that are responsible for buildings in which they are personally invested. And that's the thing, sir, you said about me, I don't yell at people or do any thing. So whatever I asked for, at least, it, you know, I, it was calm enough where it's, you know, I probably just seemed picky, but not, you know, I've never, that's screamed, really what it was. never screamed at anybody no. or anything, which I know I'm, it's has happened to you guys with, tenants and owners, I'm it sure where, but, and then it'll be, you guys, hopefully you refi one of these properties and you can, they can all go through the financials and they'll know why I'm asking for all these, you know, changes or we, this should be a did. different column. Like what we did the first one and they got all their money back and they're okay, like, nice. Oh man, I want to do this a bunch oh. of times. You're like, exactly. Right. I know. And then, they, and then the, but <laughs> so then they could see why you go through the financials. I mean, I mean turnover is CapEx, you know, like you got to go through, but that, well then let's dive into the construction sure. stuff. So like, I guess just off the top, like what would be 
one or two things that, you know, that owners should know about construction that you would think maybe they don't with what you learned? Well, there's kind of, there's two sides when I think about construction. One is with my GC hat on, one is with my investor hat on. So I'll start with the investor hat because I think that's more relevant for your listeners. If you are going to go into a project, kind of the black box of any real estate project is what does the construction cost, right? Because it is the risk, in my opinion, the riskiest component of actually executing the transaction. And so you need, I think you used the term earlier, you need to find someone you trust. And finding trustworthy contractors is not the easiest thing in the world. So I would say my, my first fundamental piece of advice, if you're an investor buying a building, go and find your GC through referrals. Going on Angie's List or Craigslist or whatever the avenue is, you're not going to get the level of, in my opinion, comfort you would get versus going to someone like call Drew or call Eric and say, who have you used that, yeah. that you would recommend? In, in the past, I had that question posed to me before we were general contractors and I wouldn't give a name because I, okay. I, I didn't have yeah. <laughs> a great experience with anyone. Okay. I had to ride really hard the contractors I worked with yeah, so and I knew I the game. So they couldn't like sneak is the wrong word, but they, they couldn't let things slip by because we were really regimented and stayed on top of them. So as the investor starting out, you should be talking to general contractors before you even have a building targeted. And you should do that because by the time you do have a building targeted, you're going to scramble. Yep. You don't want to scramble and take the, the easiest or path of least. Right. So you'll end up with, you know, one contractor off Angie's list and go, okay, this seems fine. Right. And now you're really in it. And then, but how, how would you recommend they go about getting referrals from, from who would they do this with? You, you hear a podcast like this that you're telling, you know, that you're, you're speaking on or I'm speaking on or any of the other people that you host on your, ask them to grab a conference call, grab a coffee. If you're local, grab a lunch and just pick their brain. I get that more than anything. Yep. People just want to hear what we've done in, in this industry and then ask those people specifically, do you have, a recommendation of a contractor that I could speak with and then get that contractor out for coffee if you can. And I'm again, before you're getting into the, to the investment, because right. you're going to want to call these people once it's time to make the move and not do what you said, just yeah. hop on Angie's list and take the, <clears throat> take the closest one you can get. So I'd start now if you're not even ready to invest, because now establishing those relationships is going to pay dividends when it is time to make a move. And I really think it's the referrals have to be from other owners, you know, investors, because that's who's using them. Even sometimes, you know, you get a referral from a, like an investment sales broker, like odds are they haven't, you, how you ask that, you have to almost be careful how to ask it because you just ask for a referral. They'll know some, but then maybe they not even worked with them before. It's just somebody they know. So you'd almost right. have to ask if it, you're going to ask other people in the industry, like you have to pose it where it's like, of the owners, you know, who's using the contractor and like continues, continues to use them like year after year. Like you couldn't. You got to be real specific with how you'd ask it if it wasn't to an owner. That's I a think. great point. That, but I think it's just got to be from actual owners using them. And part of the reason that, you know, I guess we never, we didn't end up using Cubed was we, I got a referral from somebody who had renovated like 50 houses with this guy here, mm -hmm. started using them before we had met. And I, I never had to use another contract. I was still using them. It's been like 10 years. You're it's lucky. Been, it, but it was because I did what you said though. I got a referral and the guy had done so many things with them. and you know, we work, we have like, it's good. Like it's, we work well together. I know there would, I, I could see where he or either me or him wouldn't work well with some clients, but like how we kind of 
both work. It lined up great. And then, but I did exactly what you said. So that's, that's interesting because it wasn't from like, he doesn't have a website or anything. I mean, he's got a license and everything and, you know, but he doesn't, it's not like he's not even on Angie's list. Funny you say that because more times than not, those are the ones that work out the best, right? Because a lot of times those are guys that actually swing the hammers, we like to say, right? He's not just peddling his services and then hiring a bunch of people. He's actually in the job doing the work. Right. And that's what we found ourselves where he, he ended up where he just worked his way up from being a painter. And yeah, there you go. And so then that's been what he's, he's been, been great, but what other, what's another, so that's how to get a contractor potentially any yep. other, like just tips off the top. I architects are also a great source because they get to see the quality of the construction and the approach the contractor takes. And in many cases they're scrutinizing that work yeah. on behalf of the owners. So architects are a great referral source. We're doing some work in Elkhart, Indiana right now, and we can't self-perform the work. At least we don't think we can yet because it's a little riskier to try and find local subs. So we went to our architect and our architect gave us three referrals where we know it a little bit better. So we know the questions to ask, but we're, we're, we're hiring a GC and it's the first time we've done it in years because we understand the risk of trying to what's called self-perform, which means hire all your own subs locally might be a little more risky. And what the, the, the number one question we ask is let us meet your project manager. Now these are bigger scope projects. These are five ish million dollar construction projects, but we ask them to meet their project manager and their superintendent because I can meet owner drew or owner Eric, and they are going to hopefully compel me to want to use their company because that's our job. But at the end of the day, the, the success of a project is dependent on the project manager and the superintendent. Interesting. So in smaller jobs, the superintendent, as an example, would be the guy you just talked about that was the painter that worked his way up. So when we meet with these owners, we're respectful, but we also say, your company came referred, so obviously you're doing something right. We don't need to hear any more pitch from you. We need to know who you're going to staff the job with, and we got to meet them. And that's been a key to success because a construction project runs only as well as those two individuals who run it. Download our 100-plus page Passive Investing Guidebook today. Accredited investors can sign up for our multifamily investment opportunities as well by hitting the Invest Now button on our website. Now back to the show. That's really interesting. I just typed that on my laptop. I'm going to, <laughs> I'm going to re-meet with that company on Monday that I was talking about in Phoenix. And I mean, then I'll, I'll ask to do that because that's, and he talked about who managed it. It's basically like experienced construction people, but it sounded like they were kind of halfway retired, but then they, they were the ones who'd run the job. And then they would go get the materials and they don't have the people leave the, the site. Well, that's, that's which that's I like the point. sound of that, but great point. I'll definitely ask to meet some of those guys. Cause we're going to spend most of Monday together, but nice. That's, that's interesting. Sweet. What, I just gave you so, a tip. I know. I like it. Let's get it. it. I wrote it down. <laughs> so, well, great. What, but then, so you meet, what sort of questions would you be asking or what are you looking for in that meeting then? If you meet, whether it's an owner or, I mean, on a smaller job, there's not going to be a project manager, but it, what kind of things do you be asking in your so so i I get in to the process a little more nitty gritty first off, so I, I guess let's answer the question directly. so you're saying an example where I'm going to buy a three flat or a six flat and I'm just going to hire the guy the equivalent of the yeah. guy you've been working with right or or someone's going to you know they're buying something and they want to talk to cubed well, what would you think would be smart questions for them to be asking you guys so how first and foremost, how do you run your weekly meetings? Are, are there weekly meetings? Because as an owner, you want to be speaking to your contractor 
no less than twice a month, but ideally once a week. And the purpose of that meeting is to just walk through progress. Because one thing, a term you'll hear in construction a lot is change orders. And change orders can can make and break a, a project. Oftentimes, contractors, and this is something we fundamentally don't do, oftentimes contractors will just do the make the change order or, or, or perform the change order and then come to you after the change order has occurred and be like, you owe me this much money for it. Wow. And I'm sure oh, maybe you haven't had the, yeah. that experience. We've had it. We've We've done it the wrong way and we've experienced it the wrong way. And the way you avoid that as an owner doing a project is you have weekly or biweekly meetings with your contractor and you have the same agenda and you go over the same thing every, every week or two weeks and you have your notes from the prior meeting. And if something happened like behind the wall, a plumbing run was cracked and the only way to fix it was to cut out a big section of, of the cast iron pipe. And that's going to cost $3,000. They need to alert you of that. They need to show you pictures of that. And then you need to authorize that they do it because what now I'm putting on my GC hat, if you're not expeditious in answering or giving us approval, we can't hit timelines for you. Right. But then on the flip side, putting on my owner hat, is there another alternative to doing this? Do we have to just run real quick and do, do the change? How do I know that's happening? You know, constructively, the way you know that is each week you're talking to your contractor and doing your best to visit the property. And then you want to approve all change orders. All change orders need to be approved in writing. Okay. Because that that's part of the reason I've stuck with this guy for since the beginning, basically where any change order we're approving. And he's basically like, like he doesn't use it as a profit center, which I know most people, that's what they want to do. That's where they're really making big money is in change orders is how it feels to me. And where he used to sort of is like, does it for cost? Like we both lose Well, in his mind. So that's been part of this also why it's hard to, hard to switch. It just works like that. It's that's such, fantastic. It's such a nice alignment. I know it's rare. So that's, you know, no, it, it is. I, you know, change orders should never be where, where you make your money. Another, another answer to your question of things that an investor should do when it comes to the construction process is move to what's called a cost plus contract. We're pushing these as the GC now. And it's another term you hear is open book. Really what that means is here's my plumbing cost, my electric cost, my drywall. And I'm going to put my fee on top of that. It's yeah. 10% or 15%, whatever it is. And if you want to change, we just give you the bill from the drywall subcontractor. And we have already pre-negotiated a fee that we're going to get to charge on that change order. And that way you as the owner see every single dollar that's going in and out. And then the next level of security you should always have on your jobs is that those payments go through a title company. So you're not paying me, the general contractor, and hoping that I'm going to pay the subcontractor. Obviously we're a professional company. We wouldn't do that, but there's a lot of guys out there that might do that. So a title company exists in a construction project so that wherever the money is coming from, whether it's a bank giving you money to renovate your project or it's coming out of your own pocket, the cash goes to the title company. And then the title company makes the payments to the subs when the subs produce for them the documentation in the form of lien waivers which is basically them saying, I am receiving this payment and I am releasing my lien or ability to lien this property for the amount of work I've completed as shown on this lien waiver. And that way, as the owner, you're protected that your GC is in fact paying all your subs because things that can happen that can really, really disrupt a project is a GC doesn't tell the owner that they haven't paid drywall person. Maybe not because they're being shady, but because they have a problem with that drywall guy. And that drywall guy won't show up at the job. 
And he, he is the GC doesn't want to pay the drywall guy. Well, the drywall guy can go and lean the project. But if you've got a title company administering those payment payments and controlling that paperwork, you're always protected. Yeah, that's a great tip that and when you, the, how would you set up the cost plus as a percentage of the job, like the, the add on the fee that's being charged by the GC or you're, you were saying you're trying to get it as a flat fee at the start of the project. Sorry, I, as a percentage. So generally in a cost plus project, it's, it runs anywhere from eight to 15%. Really humongous jobs like the powers do. I mean, we don't need to get into it, but they've got a variety of different fees they charge. But if you're just thinking about kind of back to my term, meat and potatoes construction project, between eight and 15%. And if an example would be if that wall needs to get drywalled and to do it, it's a thousand bucks. You see a thousand dollars gets paid to ABC drywall and 10% or a hundred dollars gets paid to cube construction. Right. And those checks go to the people directly. And it, it just aligns interest, right? Cause I know as a contractor, I'm going to get paid for the scope change. And you as a subcontractor know you're paying a market rate for that work. The GC is not trying to put extra profit in there in the, for, for whatever reason. Right. And it just, it makes the conversations a lot easier. And what have you, what are your thoughts around how do you know that's like the, like that bill that you're getting from the drywall company? Let's say in that example, it's not somehow additionally marked up. Like there's not another hundred bucks for the GC or something going on. I mean, obviously we wouldn't do that, but like, just what are you doing to protect yourself from that? The superintendent back to what I said in the beginning is so critical because it's the superintendent's job to identify and scope out that change and then to hold those subcontractors accountable to a price for that, for that change, if you will. A superintendent, if it was, you know, John Smith who graduated from college three years ago and he's getting his feet wet and superintendent, I wouldn't want that superintendent on my job because they don't have the experience of understanding what prices no. should be. But if you've got Larry Smith, who's been doing it for 20 years and can call BS on any subcontractor that's trying to push through extra profit, as you just described, and you've met that super and you know, and you feel good about that super, they are the protection for you. They are the ones that are really making sure that that price that's coming through isn't marked up unreasonably. It is a market price. Now, look, the drywall person, they need to get compensated for the time. Of course, they're going to have some profit in there for themselves. But if it's excessive prof profit, an experienced superintendent will know that. And then what about, I guess it really just comes down to trust because someone else could think, what if there's a, you know, in the thousand dollar drywall bill, there's a, the GC charges me a hundred bucks, but maybe the drywall guy threw another hundred bucks on for the GC or something, you know? So you really, that's why these referrals, cause then Reputation. at a certain yep. point, like, cause I get asked questions like that too. And yep. then that's, I mean, that, that could be happening, but then it really, it comes down to where, I mean, how'd you get in touch with this general contractor? Cause that stuff eventually would be figured out or eventually that owner who might've referred would have done enough jobs and realized, wait, this is like, I'm paying too much. There's something else going on here. So it wasn't a 10% markup. It yep. was like 30. And then that yep. that's why the referral is so important. Well, that's a great point. One thing, going back to what I was recommending about talking to the super and the PM, one thing to ask the owner, the ownership team of that company is give me some references. And when you talk to those references, it's not about necessarily how is the quality? Of course that matters. And how are the timelines that matters? But what was your percentage overrun on the job? Oh, nice. Right. Yeah. So your, your project cost was a million dollars. Where did they end up? A million one. So why'd they end up at a million one? And the owner, you'll be able to read it on their face, right? I made the changes. That was on me or 
you know, and, you know, when you see like the stuttering a little bit okay. or not a clear answer, that should give you a little bit of pause that maybe cost overruns are in your future with this GC. Yeah. And that doesn't mean to not use the GC. That just goes back to the make sure you're having weekly meetings with them. Communication lines remain open. And you tell that GC, if you are running into a change, document it, let me see it, and let's talk about it. I, as the owner, will be able to make fast decisions for you so it doesn't mess up right. your timeline so long as you promise me good documentation yeah, explanations when those things happen. But I, there is no way in the world of construction to mitigate 100% of the risk. It's just the nature of construction. And I, what's interesting, I really like these tips because it's, it's like realistic for the owner to do and is like practical stuff. A lot of it you're doing on the front end with the vetting, but cause I've heard other tips where it's like, well, you need to figure out the costs on your own. Like go to home Depot, figure out what drywall costs, look at it. How many sheets, how long would the guy need to be there? What's the hourly rate? Does he charge by the day? And it just, it seemed, it seems unrealistic. Sure. If you are running a ton of jobs and you're fine, you could do that. Or are you doing this full time? But if you're buying a, a 16 or whatever your example was, and you're going to renovate it, you know, maybe through, you know, through this referral, you don't have time to try to re reverse engineer and price this stuff out. Like you got to start right. with the strong referral. Right. And, and then vet them from there, you know, that it's, so that's a very practical where I've heard other tips and it, it even seemed a little unrealistic for me to do as a full-time person. So I, that would be really difficult, right? Well, you just have really no way to estimate the labor, right? Correct. Unless you've done it. You and know, like, like drywall, that takes a long time. A lot of these things, you got to go back three times and mud it up, let it dry, come back. Like where it's, well, the ceiling's 15 feet high. What? Well, 15 feet means I have to erect scaffolding. And then I need two guys and need a spotter sometimes who's up there. And then I need the other one who's hanging it. Okay. Well, then I need the guy to tape and mud it. Like these are precision right. things in the process that no lay person right. would know. And it took me years to even understand of vetting subcontractors and calling you know, no. yes on some of the things that they charge, but then also being educated by them where they would say, come watch this, come watch me hang the drywall. No. And then tell me if you think we can get it done for your number. And you're like, Oh, okay. Now, okay, nice. now yeah. I, now I get it. That's That's interesting. What, and the other types of contracts and these, you only see these on bigger jobs. Like they have the terms like gross max price. Yeah. And then also, but that's same thing where like a, your recommendation for cost plus, I would assume that's because a lot of times when someone has to bid a job, whether it's a gross max price contract or not, it's they need to bid it high enough where they know they're going to make money. Right. Where if you do cost plus, they know they're going to make money. They're going to make the plus, you know, right. so then they're they don't. Whereas if you're just going to give someone a bid and then cost, especially right now where materials, labor, everything's so volatile that you have to bid it high to know you're going to make money. And then if the job goes fine and they didn't need to bid it so high, they just keep the difference. So that, yeah. I, I, so I understand why, but I just want to point that out why that I like that recommendation. Cause this, you ask people to bid it. A lot of times they even tell me if I bid it, I have to bid it high. So I know I'm going to make money. If you want me to send someone there for two days, I charge you for the two days and a little extra, which is what you're describing. Like for a medium right. sized job, like they'll tell me that, like if I bid it, I got to bid it high. Otherwise I could just send them and, you know, tell you what I'll add yeah. on top. And then that it's the same thing, but you're just explaining that for a whole project. And there's, there's two sides to it, right? So one is, oh, hey, Mr. GC, you're doing a cost plus. You have no motivation to beat down the price, right? Back to the referral right? and, and, and feeling good with the reputation and experiencing. But the other side of it, and now this is happening to me, 
is our subs, we've been forcing them to bid lump sum. Lump sum is where it's the example you just used. It's the term for the drywall of this building is going to cost $100,000. And six months later, the drywall starts, right? Because projects just getting permits oh, right, take right. time. And drywall moved in price. And the subcontractor says, my price is now 110000 And me and the, as the GC, I said, well, you bid me 100 And the drywall guy says, well, all right, I'm not doing it. All right, whoa. So I go to another drywall guy and that drywall guy's 115 and that guy's 110. And then I come crawling back to the drywall guy yeah. and go, could you do it for 108? It, it, it is important, you know, it may feel like you're not aligning interest in the sense that the GC may not mo be motivated to, you know, get you the lowest price, but that's not what a good GC is doing. A good GC is working with good subs that they know they can reasonably rely upon. But over the past year, we've moved to this cost plus because the subs are getting hurt, the GCs are getting hurt, and then you have contention on a project yeah. and battles between owner and GC, and that hurts everybody. Right. If you're doing a lump sum or max price thing and it's you're so far off, I mean, people aren't going to show up. Really, they're going to be like what you're saying. You know, well, for a hundred grand for that travel work, I'm not going. I can just bid a new one and charge one twenty. Exactly right. Interesting. What? What else? Any other thoughts on this? On just the the pricing and 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 working with the GC, you know, it's I reputation really is critical. But here is what I will say: if you ever find yourself in a contentious or contentious arrangement or even a dispute, and it's traditionally over money <laughs> in construction, there's really two major disputes: money and time. Do everything in your humanly power to not go nuclear. The GC will lose, the owner will lose. And at the end of the day, I've been in projects where we as the GC lose money, the owner loses money, but we navigate the thing to the finish line. Someone once said to me, a construction project is an anniversary at the beginning. But by the end, there can be, you can be teetering on divorce. And the key is to seek counseling <laughs> in between. <laughs> and that counseling is conversations and communication. Because the worst thing for both parties is if I, as the GC, walk off the job or you, as the owner, fire me. Because no one's going to win. And, lit and litigation can ensue. It's better to just see it to the finish line and, and be reasonable as the owner and be reasonable as the GC and acknowledge we're going to take a little bit of a hit. You're going to take a little bit of a hit. Maybe it's a little bit of our fault. Maybe it's a little bit of your fault. But we're together on this. It really is truly a partnership. And that, that term can be used loosely by people. Oh, I'm going to partner with yeah. you. That's how I... No, but you're really in a partnership because there's so much money at stake and a, a good contractor wants to maintain their reputation and they will work with you, but there has to be reasonableness both ways. Interesting. So then if, let's say if I were to ask you, what would you, what would you recommend for firing? If you had to your contractor, you would say, try everything you could not to first. Well, just, and then, you know, you're going to spend more than you want. Fine. But it'd be better to just see it through with the original contractor take your lumps on that and then get the contractor to chip in somehow and then just see it through. That Correct. If you cannot get past that point of contention, the best thing you can do is sit down. I always go back to communication and have the progress of the project here, the amount of payments that are here, and then negotiate a payoff to cut off the contract with the current GC Right. So they take their money. Okay. You're saying if you can't work it out, Correct. then this is what, what to, what you could do. Yes. And yours explain a scenario where 
who is like ahead of who in this? Like the contractor has done more work or the owner has paid more than what's been completed? Good question. Let's use the example of where the contractor has done more work. Okay. Okay. Not, not because I'm biased and I'm the contractor in this conversation because typically this is an easier conversation at least then. Okay. Because it's, 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 it's the leverage that you find more often than not where the contractor has continued working and you as the owner haven't necessarily paid them. And you're paying his work complete. Correct. You know, ideally through a title company. Correct. And this is, but I don't get my payment from the title company and stop and wait until that money comes in and then start working again. I'm still working. If, but, but if you don't pay me, I can lean you. Right. And when I lean you, a lien impedes an owner from refinancing their property or getting, getting more debt because that lien prevails over everything. Right. So you sit down, you go through the progress of the project and you go through what you've paid them and you negotiate a price for a walkaway. Don't ever have that sit down until you've had the opportunity to go price what it'll cost to finish the job. And here's why I say avoid this at all costs because the new contractor is going to come in and they're going to say, well, they're done at X percent. Existing contractors are going to say, I'm done at Y percent. You're going to have to find some number between X and Y percent that you pay the old contractor to go away. And then new contractor, right or wrong, may come in and go, man, I was wrong. He wasn't to Y percent. He was to, you know, V percent. And I didn't know that because I'm starting to open up the walls and see some of the things he did wrong. I'm, I'm giving you the nightmare scenario. Plus here. the person's going, I, would, I kind of just want to make a certain amount on the job to take it. And then maybe they're going for a higher percent on the second contractor because his job's a third of the size now. You got you know, it. Or whatever. You, that, you hit the nail on the head. So what if I just pay this guy a little bit more and just get this thing to the finish line? I've separated from over my 10 plus years of doing this, I separated contentiously from three contractors where I was the construction manager and they were the GC. And I've resolved disputes with probably... 30 plus subcontractors and the three I didn't resolve turned into nightmares for me. Interesting. They were, it was experiences I never want to go through ever again. And I will do everything in my power to not do that. But as I was coming up, I, I did my best to vet subcontractors, but you just can't control, you know, what you don't know. So it's interesting people's the subs and even contractors, their behavior does change with how in demand their services are. That's you know, Absolutely right. Where it's, it's interesting, and I'm not the direct communication, but once winter hits, I got painters calling me. Even. You know, like, and I'm, and I'm not the person right. that hires them. But if I need to call them in the summer, it's, oh, we're busy right now, Drew. Yep. Let's do, you know, like, and yep. so it's a total, so that, that happens too, where, you know, everything's going fine. You hit a dispute and they got a bigger job and, you know, some bigger, better thing potentially going on that's, yep. you know, it's, and then, okay, so you had maybe 30. It's interesting, maybe we get a percent from you. If you had 30, Projects where you had to do something, one of these, you know, resolve it and move on or break off. How many total projects were you? Have you done anything? If you just had to guess a number. Oh, gosh. Hundreds of projects. But I'll say it differently. I bet you I have a subcontractor challenge, not dispute challenge on every project, every single project. Now we do rehab. We don't do ground up. So we're all we're constantly dealing with unknowns. And when a client understands that it's their responsibility to pay it. It's easy to deal with the sub. Sometimes the sub, the client won't pay for it and the client's right. And the sub bid it wrong and it's on the sub. And sometimes sub didn't bid it wrong. We as the GC missed it and we have to eat it. 
those happen in rehabs, probably every single project. I've just found over the years, especially with the loyalty these subcontractors will show, that if you got to take a hit as the GC and pay them a few extra bucks to cover it, and that if their change order to you is five grand, it's definitely not the responsibility of the owner, and you split it with them 25, 25, both parties walk okay, away yeah. happy and we stay, we stay in business, right. you know, moving forward. It's, that's, why that's why we're having this conversation. Construction has so many unknowns, especially in the rehab world. But to answer your question directly, of the hundreds of jobs I've done, I bet you there's been a, a disagreement on every single job. 30 where it's been not a good, not a good disagreement where it's kind of, you know, we've, yeah. we've hit heads, but have gotten through it. And three where we didn't. Interesting. And then so that even, but then 10% or so of the jobs turn into where it's almost, there's a little bit more of a dispute to resolve versus yes. like a small thing that yes. everyone just kind of moves past yes. or. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be brutally honest here. I think if you have other GCs on and they're like, Oh no, they always go well. They're, they're not yeah, telling you the that, truth. Then it's not going well for the owner then, you know, if you're right. just, they, I just told them no, not a problem then. Yeah. You know, like that, that's, maybe that's not a good answer. That's what, let's see what else about, you know, how do you think about risk management? I mean, there's so many different elements of a project and yep. you know, people can actually get hurt. It's different than working on a computer. Good point. So, First and foremost, there's really two types of insurance. We make all of our clients get what's called a builder's risk policy. And that's really more than anything for any type of theft that occurs on the job site while you're working, because I don't have full control of your building when I'm renovating it. You right. have the keys too, and things can happen. But then there's just general liability and property coverage. And God forbid someone gets hurt. You as the owner have to have me naming you on my insurance policy, right? Because if it's something that I did wrong, scaffolding falls while someone's standing there and they get hurt in the property. You got to make sure that my insurance is covering that as the general contractor because it wasn't your fault. So insurance is, is number one. And I'm, I'm going to intentionally stop there on insurance because we could go on for hours on insurance. The other thing that people can do that are in this game, if the, if the job can support the price, is get what's called an owner's rep. And an owner's rep is someone that really works on behalf of the owner and scrutinizes the general contractor's work quality, timelines, and change orders. And owner's reps are traditionally, they come out of architectural fields or in many cases as general contractors, former general contractors, where they can, they can look at what the contractor is doing with very experienced eyes. So the owner knows that someone is operating on their behalf. So you don't, you don't fall into the snare where the, the drywall change order comes in at $20,000 when it should have been 10. And he's telling you it's because of the scaffolding he has to erect. I know I keep going yeah, back yeah, to this yeah. example. The owner's rep would go, you don't really you don't need, need that. that for that. Okay. No, you don't. And he, you would never know that. And early in my days, I didn't know that. So owner's reps are, what, are used. What size job would you say a dollar size construction job you'd recommend an owner's rep above what amount? Probably once you start getting over two and a half, three million dollars is where you probably want some type of oversight. Because what do what do they charge? It's a, it ends up being a project cost. Or you know, how, how I do don't. You, how do they view it? I don't. I, I think they usually do it as a percentage of. It's funny you ask. We are we are getting ready to use our first in Indiana. Well, we're we're gonna we're gonna employ our first through sure. Cube to monitor the GC that we hire. So we just started looking at what those prices are. I don't know. I think it's usually a percentage of the job think like two to 3%. I mean, it's not cheap. It's not okay. cheap. Cause I, I asked someone I knew who worked at Gallup, how they did, like how they manage their projects and they, they would have a project. They refer to it as a project manager, but it's the same function is how, what he described. So it was really owner's rep project manager. And 
they would it was a project cost and then that person more or less they do that like just it's like just a third party person you're hiring it's not like on your payroll so then it just sticks with that project so, and that's there was a similar setup even when you get my point is even when you get into a high rise it's the same thing except i think what they were doing is you can just doesn't even need to be a percentage anymore those jobs are so big it was like uh you know they get they just get paid essentially like a monthly fee but that's for a person to receive was sizable. Well, so, so Gallup, I worked for them and I worked okay. for that in, individual and that person was an employee of Gallup's. Okay. And they were a capital, they were their capital projects employee. And, and when you're big enough, you have to have one. Of them. A lot of our work that we get here locally is we work directly for those construction managers that are employees of the, of the developers. Oh, nice. And what size job was that though? This, I was talking maybe on a high rise. Kind yeah. Of thing, we, that was. It was a seven and a half million dollar job of a high rise. It was a volume renovation program. Oh, nice. Great. So then, okay. So insurance, owner's rep, what else? Minute reduce risk. (sighs) Probably missing all kinds. But starting with the referral, I mean, then that's. You know, I I went from the vetting process onto the actual project execution. The other thing I'll go back to is, is liens and the title company. I thought that was a really good tip because even, uh, I mean, Truth be told, on deals we've done at cash, I just wrote a check. I never thought uh, I have, didn't have a problem ever with the, yep. the guy's subs leaning, but you know, I didn't pay through a title company. I was yeah. getting lien waivers, but I mean, I was just doing it. We weren't actually running title to see. You know, these weren't very big jobs compared to the, like the examples you're right. throwing out now. But were that I that that's a good tip, and then that way too, it's like asking for these waivers, and then the title company can rerun title and make sure that the thing's not leaned, and then they're doing that. It's not like the owner and the contractor are like, all right, I'm ready to pay you. I got my checkbook. Where's your lien waivers? Oh, you don't got them. Uh, now you got to close it and walk away. It's hard to do, you know, like where with the title company, that's, you know, that's a third well, party. They got a lot. It's a big company. They got a lot of rules to follow. And they give you insurance. If they're wrong and they do, you just, you just said it. They, they review the property. They review title before they issue you what's called a date down endorsement. If they issue that and there are liens that came out, you can use their insurance. You pay yeah, for a title yeah. insurance policy. So that's a critical part of protection. If you're doing what you're doing, what you were doing, where you're doing a small project and it's quarter million bucks or half yeah, well, I'm thinking it was less than that. Even we were renovating just a few apartments, but it was, I, I think just that's remember- overkill. Uh, that's overkill. For but I'm saying like a lot of people then would do that and then carry it forward where now you buy something that's 50 units and you're, yep. it's the same person yep. maybe. And I'm just used to writing out the checkbook. I didn't yep. think to do it differently, but he's using different subs. The dollar amounts are going up. So I think that's a, a really good tip. So nice. What, what about people talk a lot about value engineering, but like practically, like what are some things that an owner could do? I know I hear this a lot about how every, everybody is really good at value engineering. And they say, you know, where you got, you know, I know how to optimize all the yeah. costs and it's, Sometimes almost funny who's saying it because it's, you know, yep. just some person who's on the computer all day. Like, how are they value engineering this from their from their keyboard? But any, anyways, what what would you say? It's it's a term that everyone throws around. It's one of those like wonderful real estate key phrases. I value engineering starts with understanding how to invest in real estate. And this this term that I think a lot of your listeners have probably heard is called underwriting. And underwriting is the very start of the project. You see something you want to acquire. And then you put together an Excel model and that Excel model is really designed to figure out how this project will turn out based on doing a value add process. So a renovation project will get me how much in new rents 
optimizing some of the building systems will bring my operating expenses down by how much so I can generate this much cash flow. Value engineering as part of that is about scope of the rehab. Yeah, project. this is I thought you were going to optimize the scope was what is in my head when you're describing this. So is that yeah, what you're talking about? That's exactly what I'm talking about. And scope is not I should use ceramic counters versus granite. That's not going to change the outcome of this project. And then stainless steel versus white appliances, people think like, oh, if I just decrease the quality of the finishes, I can save money. And that's my value engineering. That's oh. not. And so you're saying you're kind of doing that in conjunction with the whole underwriting, because if you switch those appliances, now I got to drop my rents and let's see what this all looks like. That's, that's part of it. But it's like if my construction budget out of the gate, I'm going to I will use figuratively speaking, $25,000 per door. Okay. And in my $25,000 per door, I'm going to get a new kitchen and a new bath and new floors. But someone who's not as experienced may go, I need to spend $50,000 because the drywall is really beat up and the trim looks really bad and the doors are in really rough shape. I should replace all of those things oh, and spend 50 a door. Doing the kitchens and the baths and the floors and the paint are what are going to yield you the return and the higher rents. Right. Doing the other $25,000 is not going to yield you much, if any, return. It's not fair to say blanket that, oh, doing all that work's never going to get you more rent. Of course, it can help a little bit, but it won't help on the basis that the first 25000 put into the critical areas of the unit are going to help. So value engineering is understanding that. And how do you understand that? Either you've done it a bunch of times or you meet with people who've done it a bunch of yeah. times and go, should I be doing all of this work? And we say, no way, yeah. right? Because the nicks and the drywall aren't going to change it. So scope value engineering is about scope to me. Interesting. And I think one piece too, that you got to understand, you got to know your deal, really how all the different pieces change and know who the, I feel like know who the end renter is going to be. This is a for rent project where the comment on the doors and all and trim for 90% of apartments, that's right. And then, but if you have a super high end tenant you're going for, maybe you do get a payoff on Great just point. doing it all the way. But even all the stuff that you, as you're mentioning, I was like, yeah, why would you ever replace the doors? That's what right. I was like, almost, was like confusing in the middle, but I, the makes total sense where that totally unnecessary people look kitchen, bathroom floors needs to be clean, but you know, an old trim, if it's painted the right colors, you know, doesn't, it's, it's totally fine totally. In, in most all rentals. But you make a great point on the luxury product, right? And that's a product that you're really familiar with. And you've done a great job with that stuff does matter. And if you put the first 25 in, it doesn't get you those rents, right? But the next 25 does, you got to look at the bifurcation of those two 25s. Right. I know I keep going back to this simple example. Well, I like it, but on most apartments is exactly what you're talking about, right. where you're not going to want to do that. And then, but I was thinking about the apartments that I had where I spent a lot of time picking out the door handles and stuff and it <laughs> you know, paid off. But that was like such a rare thing. So that yep. you're like the stuff we're buying now, that's not the case where it's just the exact scope actually is just the things you rattled off kitchens, baths, floors, repaint, add laundry, well, go. Right. And then we're talking about a more simple investment project, right? Where you're not getting behind the walls and ripping everything apart. Right. You start getting into gut renovations. Value engineering takes on a whole new meaning. Where am I going to run my plumbing stacks? What size should my washer dryer cabinets be? Should I use electric base wash, you know, dryers? Should they be gas forced? Where should I place my common? Like, Value engineering there is where you've got an architect involved, yeah. an owner's rep, experienced GC, the PM and the superintendent are involved in the project early, early on. That would probably not, I wouldn't recommend that scope of project for someone who's new to the game. Right. But that's kind of where you and I evolved to. And, and I, you know, yeah. learned as we went. 
But the early stuff for me was, you know, we, it, I hate the term, but I use it all the time is lipstick on a pig, right? Mm-hmm. We'd refresh the unit and it was the lowest risk type of work. Right. And so you really think about value engineering, about optimizing the scope. And then if you're, if it's a big project, then it's really also, it's optimizing the scope, but also optimizing really how you're specifically doing things. Like don't run the electric to the whole other side of the building. You're wasting all this money. Keep it in the back yep. corner. It's the shortest run. Like that's the value exactly. engineering to you. Exactly. That's, that's exactly right. what, cause it's not, what about getting materials where what as a, from an owner standpoint, where do you recommend they try to, you know, when I, I, another thing I think about with value engineering is like, like figuring out what materials to buy, you know, where you could make a, like a running list of the finishes you want, where it worked out, where like the price was, I'll just say right for what you wanted to get in out of your, you know, your rental lift. So you got the, the, the toilet that's cheap, but not the cheapest one. And it yep. looks to a rent, you know, a resident, the same as a one that might be double. What, any thoughts on that, where that might be overkill for some, or what have you done or seen other people doing? A big one that always works. And we learned this is laminate flooring. Like we always thought it was essential to have traditional hardwood floors and, and using hardwood floors is great if you can refinish them, but putting in brand new hardwood floors is going to yield no more money than putting in the LVT luxury vinyl tile or laminate flooring equivalent. That's going to be half the price. Knowing that just came out of renovating apartments and seeing what happened. We use a lot of porcelain ceramic tiles. We use simple white subway backsplash tiles. And they're, a, you know, 30 cents a square, but people love them. And if you right. use a dark grout, it looks fantastic. It looks clean. Yeah, and the color's on trend, but it, the price totally. is low, right? But you got to stay ahead of the trends, yeah. right? You know, 15 years ago, cherry and Brazilian floors and, you know, maple cabinets were where it's at. Now right. that looks, you know, completely, you know, old. Now you see black fixtures. I mean, that yeah. just came around, you know, we've, we've, we think we've done a pretty good job of staying ahead of the curve, but even we kind of get set in our ways and just do things the way we always did. So I think it, I think looking at the, the trends that are happening and then thinking like, am I really going to, if I put true marble on my counters, is that going to get me a penny more of rent or should I do it's 50% counterpart and use quartz? What, what do you think about the black, black hardware? I love it. Is that trend going to stick around? Probably not. It's probably going to look so stupid, but right now I love it. That's what we were talking about on Tuesday when they were like, you think we got, because they did, the, the guy we're buying off of did two test units and he changed all the, all the hardware to, to black and it looks nice, but it's just, it's like, this is something that might last like a year or two only. Right. Or, but some of these trends, they stayed a long time, but it's funny. We were just, I'm, I'm just thinking it's the brushed nickel and then everything else matches like already the. A lot of stuff we could keep. It's brushed nickel, all the shower stuff. And it's like, we're going to opt to not do it, but it's not that high end of a project. Well, you know what's happened? One one of the trends that I cannot understand, and we actually did it in our house, and my wife insisted on, was monochromatic, where the trim, the walls, the counters, the cabinets, they're all the exact same color and they're dark. And I just, I, I don't get it, but it looks really, really cool. And it's on trend right now, but I don't know. How does something like that last? I feel like that's in 15 years going to walk in. Remember like yeah. 15 years now you walk into someone, they have wallpaper that's like floral on every single wall. And you're like, who thought that was okay yeah, to do? That's funny. That, what color are the floors then at your house? My, I, so I used, I did maple, like light floors. And then, and then everything's dark. Everything was dark. And it's just one room. Oh, and it okay. actually looks, it looks really, really yeah. for now. That, you know? Well, no, I, I, well, I like that. I owned a house with black floors and that's where I'm wondering, that's where you're going with it. 
this is a good tip for this podcast. Houses with black floors, you'd be vacuuming every week, if not more. Whereas if you had a light colored floor, you know, it's, yep. it's normal. Is that, that was all through, I mean, during the being home from COVID, I mean, I was vacuuming every Saturday, basically. <laughs> it was like, you just need to do it. The place looks so looks dirty. looks terrible. I know. Yeah, it's funny. Now I have light floors and it's like, well, I just, yeah, you know, probably vacuum half as much. Totally. So that's funny. That's where I was asking, like, this is a real bad trend if also the floors are dark. I no, agree. we, I didn't actually know that about yeah. the light floors. I didn't think that through. And it's great because my floors get really dirty <clears> and you can't tell because they're so light. It's funny, everybody, when they were at my house, if they had a house with black floors, they made a comment like, oh, I I had a house with black floors before, yep. like in the 80s, and never doing that again. Good luck, like kind of thing. Like, totally. You know, everybody's parents would basically say that. That's funny. That's, so then value engineering really about, so, but what about, so for how involved then you think an owner should be in terms of like what materials to use? Because an owner can know what you're saying. Like, I'm not getting any more rent using the using hardwood versus other floors i guess how do you feel with the laminate compared to vinyl floors are you viewing that as the same product i'm 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 generically referring to it as the same product a a manufactured not not manufactured hardwood a a true synthetic material for the floor got it that is extremely durable waterproof comes with you know its own its own underlayment has been extremely good for us across our buildings and has given that appeal of a gut renovated. That I agree with. And then even out of that, those different synthetic products, I'm, I like vinyl so much because it's it's so quiet. It is. In, in a weird way, almost totally. depending on the use, I prefer it more than hardwood. And it's like could be a third of the price or half, depending on what you're picking. It's crazy. But for the sound and then you can just wash it. You yeah. know, like it's not like wood where you need to actually, you know, be careful what you do. But this is yep. just a piece of plastic, basically. Yep. And you can replace a piece. Right. You know, they can pop out and put back in. We've... You know, we do almost exclusively white cabinets. I've heard owners complain about that because of the damage they take. That is a consideration. You got to think about your tenant profile. But, you know, it's we've got a pretty standard package that we go with and it's been successful. I was I always ask, when is stainless going to go out of style? And it just has been here and it doesn't seem like it's ever going to go away. It's been years that stainless is what you do. So, you know, we put stainless appliances in every one of our apartments and that's the standard. Right. And I think it, I mean, it'll be a while. I saw, I think is, I saw one project where they went with all black appliances yep. and then they matched their, cause they were matching it to their hardware cause they were trying, they're trying to be on trend. And I, I thought stainless looked a lot better. So if it was intentional, I didn't, I don't think it, I yeah, think it looked per- kind of personally, new... I think it, it looked worse and it, cause it's new construction. And then with the colors that they had picked, the whole kitchen just felt, the whole apartment just felt too dark. Okay. So it's, that's the other thing where you have those, it's, the space feels smaller and darker. So that's why this, until it goes out of style, I'll just be doing white cabinets, super light, gray paint on the walls. It just works. Light gray floor. Right? It and just then, works. Because uh, I was in one, another deal this week where they did a renovation to all of the specs we're talking about, but then the floors were like a pretty dark vinyl. Couldn't help myself. And they're like, what do you think of this? I'm like, oh, this, well, these floors are a little dark, but otherwise I like it. You know, I could have just said I liked it. And then I, because that was the one with the, basically the best laundry install ever. But then, you know, what else do you think? And then I told him about the floors. If you don't. Well, <laughs> the the one thing, and maybe they did this for that reason or not, but one uh, now I like putting on hats, I'm going to put on my property manager hat and you, you, you will test You will be a testament to this. I'm sure using the light gray paint in every single unit. Right. So that when the turnover happens, we can feather in the paint. We've always got buckets of it waiting yeah. versus one paint color here, another paint color there, and then having to keep that all on inventory 
And if you don't have the right match, then you can tell that it was, it was patched up. We like to keep consistency, at least building by building, if not portfolio by portfolio. Are you guys still using gray all yeah. the yeah. color? Yeah. Okay. Are you? Depends. I would say we, we did, but then in a couple of buildings, we wanted to go lighter. So okay. then we've been using paper white. Okay. Like that's what our office painted. And then your, this has a gray. Tendency. It does, but it's actually like a white, like it's way, it's way less dark than like the gray owl even so but in the, if you know but if apartment has a lot of light this will just look like a white paint so yeah. you can't use it everywhere but no just curious because then once it's working then you're just i mean you guys have been using gray owl for this is probably going on since i've years. known you so this is that's funny and i had my versions of that that are the warm tone ones too so that you know that's but you know how it goes, right? Like you don't ever want to have to paint a whole apartment, but you also don't want to patch it in everywhere because you can just tell it looks, it just looks chintzy, right? Or you bring the paint all the way up to right below the trim. Yeah. You and I had that problem <laughs> once in one of your apartments. Right. So it's that talk about value engineering, talk about underwriting. It's thinking about things like that and, and being a longer term owner and the turnover, the things that happen, like we're, we're, split down the middle in my, in my company over the Euro washer machines. I don't like them. Yeah. More people in the company do like them. I just, I, I can't stand them, but they're cost effective. They take up a whole lot less space and they generally don't require significant utility load. Right. We haven't gotten terrible feedback from tenants, but if I have it my way, we're doing a stack of gas forced or dryer in every single unit. I mean, those all in ones, they don't, the dry in time on those. It's it takes not, forever. It's, right? it's fine for like a one or two bed, but right. it's not, you you really couldn't do it in two people living there too much. God, you and I can get into the nitty gritty here. I bet this yeah. is really compelling content. Right I know. Now. <laughs> I was going to ask him to keep talking about paint. Everybody yeah, right. Knows. So we got a paint quote and I was like, well, what? You didn't ask the brand line, sheen and color. Like what, what are we doing here? You know, like you just, you're better at he that just than got, I am. He just got a quote. Oh God, you're better. We don't, than, we than don't even, we don't know the product. We just go <laughs> that. So no, I was giving him a hard time, but because he, he, you know, they're going to prime it. It was a brick building. They're going to spray it. Yep. How many, how many coats and what product? Like, how do we compare these companies? This is so. the detail orientation I yeah. talked about with you in the very so beginning. This, but I'm not, we but learned. I'm not yelling, you know, so, <laughs> but <laughs> well, nice. I think that's, that's great. Why don't we just wrap it there? Cool. I mean, I really, really appreciate you coming by. I mean, this is yeah. the. Uh, it was a great episode. First one where I started taking notes for myself. All so, right. Uh, <laughs> I feel like I added yeah. some value. I but, value engineered, if you will. So then how can anyone that's listening or watching get in, get in touch with you? Email me, eric, E-R-I-C, at 33reality.com. Number three, number three, reality, R-E-A-L-T-Y.com. Give me a little time to respond, but I've done a couple of these podcasts. I get some really interesting conversations that come out of them. Even the, even the most simple kind of novice investors that are first to the game, if I would have had that type of help or someone who would engage, it would help me a lot. So feel free to reach out. I'm happy to answer. Just give me a little time. Sometimes I get like inundated with these emails. So I do my best to get back, but I'd love to love to talk to folks who are interested. And I can speak myself to your property management and leasing. So definitely, you know, I'd, I'd recommend it. So awesome. That's yeah. right. Little, little, I like yeah, that. Little, 33 Realty Cube Construction. Throw, throw it our way. Get the, get a cut of that, put yeah. it on the website. So. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Eric. Appreciate it. Nice episode and thanks for joining us and we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks for joining us on the Rise and Invest podcast. Please be sure to hit that subscribe button on YouTube or wherever you enjoy your podcasts. If you'd like to dive even deeper into real estate investing, check out our company's website, riseinvest.com 
where we have numerous free resources and information that can help both active and passive real estate investors. Our 100 plus page passive investing guidebook, our trends report, and our blog are all available on our website. If you are an accredited investor, you can get started today as a passive investor in our multifamily investment opportunities by hitting the invest now button on our website. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Drew Brenneman and guests as of the date of recording and do not purport to reflect the views or opinions of Rise Invest Holdings LLC and its subsidiaries. The views and opinions are provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon or deemed as investment or tax advice or an offer to buy or sell securities. And the speaker cannot be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.